wants you to disengage. Power wants you to think that politics is dirty. They want you to think that it's all down there in Canberra or Washington or Wellington or London. It's all those politicians with bribery and blackmail. I don't want to get, I don't want to get my hands dirty. As organisers, we just, we just don't accept that. Uh, we don't accept that and we are about getting people back into the fray um, because we have this, th- there is a saying that I keep next to my desk, which is, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. version of us and how do we actually build it? I'm Lillian Spencer and you're listening to The Remakers. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I'm so thrilled that you are here today for part two on our series on democracy and the new movie Big Deal. I've got another guest from the movie with us today, David Barrow, and his colleague, Tui Nguyen, and they are both professional community organizers with an organization called the Sydney Alliance, which basically builds a really diverse coalition of community groups, uh, multi-faith religious organizations, unions, and schools, and they use community organizing to make the city of Sydney fairer and more sustainable. So what is community organizing? David gives us a pretty cool um, way of thinking about it, but I also like this introduction from Marshall Gans, who is a key thinker in this space, a key educator at Harvard, a mentor to Barack Obama. And he says that community organizing actually has its roots in the sort of thinking and leadership articulated by a first century Jerusalem sage, Rabbi Hillel. And the quote is translated to something like, If I am not for myself, who will be? But if I am only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? So it's that interplay between self, community, action, and taking responsibility, kind of all of the above, that drives the approach to community organizing. It's a very relational form of organizing and power building compared to some other forms of campaigning. So these guests are just amazing at explaining what this actually looks like, what it feels like, how it's different, and how these principles are things that we can all use, we can all apply, and we can all look for and nurture more in our leaders, in our organizations, in our politics, whatever it is that we do. So I hope you love this conversation, and without further ado, here are David and Twee. So welcome to the show, David and Twee. It is such a pleasure to have you here. And I've given our audience a little bit of a backgrounder on um, you guys and the organization that you work with, but I was hoping that we could just start by giving you guys both a chance to just introduce yourselves for us a little bit. Just tell us a little bit about who you are, maybe where you grew up or some of the forces that might have shaped you and kind of how you came to find yourself doing this work that I think many of us 
don't even know really exists as a real career. Like you can go out there and be something called a community organizer. David, would you mind if we start with you? Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, greetings, uh, kia ora. Uh, my name's David. Uh, I'm, I'm the lead organizer of the Sydney Alliance and I have been organizing for 11 years with Sydney Alliance and seven years in the student movement before that. I grew up on the central coast in amongst the mangroves and the broad water, the beach and the bush. It's a beautiful place to grow up. And in the 90s, it was a place where there was still a very strong working class uh, community in Woiwoi and still there, uh, you know, fibro homes and, and disadvantage. But my dad was the doctor, so I came from privilege and it was an experience of walking between two worlds uh, where I was involved in scouting and sports in Woiwoi. And, yeah, I'd go to a school, a private school, and people wouldn't blink around money. As I grew up, you know, there's that wonderful time when you're 15 or 16, your horizons start opening. I started to get involved in issues. I had this fantastic sociology teacher, Peter Foley, who would just, you know, put his glasses in his mouth, uh, you know, the, the handle of his glasses, and just ask us questions for the whole lesson. And this was the time of Children Overboard and the Tampa Crisis and September 11 and the beginning of the Afghanistan war. And my world was expanding at a rapid rate. And, and I became angry at politics, angry at John Howard. Um, but it was actually my experience of the economy that made me a lifelong activist and then organiser because as I got into my final years at school, um, I started to see the division in, in my friends. My friends who, whose parents had money just went on to Bond University or, you know, they could. They, there was never any question about the pathway they would take. My friends whose parents didn't come from that background were in and out of precarious jobs. They were exposed to the full, um, you know, churn and waves of, of the economy. Many of them, you know, w one of my um, good friends, who's really bloody smart, you know, went to Newcastle Uni uh, and did physics. But he had to do nine years after graduating school because university was just such a long way away from his experience. So anyway, so I, I had this experience. I grew up, I came out of the closet in the Anglican church, in a conservative Anglican church. So I had all that. And so I, I kind of came to university as this bonfire ready for a match. And it was, it was the student movement that caught my imagination. And uh, I went to my first rally and we absolutely were completely ineffective and the security, got, you know, we tried to occupy the chancellery and we got pepper sprayed and Channel 9 was there with their cameras and they, um, you know, did a, did, a, did a piece on us the next day about what rat bags and, it, that, it, you know, it was about higher education access and um, it absolutely, absolutely fed right into the hands of the, the Conservative government at the time that was trying to pass this, uh, these laws. And so as I went through the, the student movement, more and more I got a sore head from banging it against a brick wall. And when I ended up the president of the National Union of Students and in that year a young man by the name of Ninton Garg was killed. He was an Indian international student. Someone threw a Molotov cocktail through his front window or something like that and I, was I went to his bedside table, bedside table, went to his bedside 
was covered in third degree burns. I was there with the president of the Federation of Indian Students. And I remember walking out of that hospital and just thinking, how, how did this happen? You know, three days later, he was, he was dead and it caused this huge uproar. But it was the, it was the approach that we took to solve that problem that was so different from how we'd, you know, all the other problems was organize a rally, you know, bang a head against a, a brick wall, see if that, um, you know, see if you break through the wall with your head and it tended not to work. But for that one, we had universities, student unions, trade unions, Hindu temples and Christian churches come together with a joint platform. And we ended up changing 34 laws related to international students. It was the biggest win we'd ever had, biggest campaign I'd ever been involved in to date that had won. And it was a model that later would be very important when I came across community organising. And, and I'll kind of finish here and, and, and throw it a twee, but um, I heard Amanda, Dr. Amanda Tattersall speak about the Sydney Alliance as a place that brought together trade unions, community organisations and people of faith. And I thought, heck, I'm, I'm a Christian, uh, I'm a member of the Uniting Church, I'm a unionist, and I care deeply about the community. That's me. And it followed a model like what we'd experienced with um, the campaign around international student rights. And that was, uh, that was 11 years ago, and I haven't looked back since. Wow, thank you for sharing that. Twee, how about you? Can you talk to us a little bit about your story um, and how you came to be doing this work? Thanks. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Twee Lin Yuen. I am a community organiser at the Sydney Alliance. And for the last four years, I've had the absolute privilege of being able to work on the Voices for Power project, which is very close to my heart. Um, that project, we are building power with diverse migrant communities across Sydney to have their voice heard on uh, climate change and energy transition. And that's uh, for me is so important to me because growing up, I didn't have that example of um, our communities having a space to really advocate for themselves. I am a daughter of Vietnamese refugees who were resettled in Marrickville. And um, I was told by my parents that if I just studied really hard and and got into a good university, became a lawyer or a doctor, the, all those migrant upbringing cliches, um, I would be okay. I would be, um, uh, I would be successful and I'll be safe here in Australia. But on when I was 12, I just got into uh, a selective school that I studied really hard to get into. I was coming on the bus on the way home and um, on that bus, some people in my neighbourhood in Marrickville started saying, Things like Asians never give up their seat on the bus. And they kept saying that. They kept saying that. And I became very aware that they were talking about me and people who look like me. And at that moment, I realized that no matter how hard I tried to um, play by the rules, get be really smart, talk with an Australian accent, I will, there'll be always someone who looks at me and people like me and say, I don't belong. And so when I learned about climate change in year 12, how uh, our neighbours, uh, Pacific Island nations, who are our neighbours, are losing their homes 
I I know what that's like because my parents talked to me about displacement, right? We came here because we had to leave our country. I knew what that's like and I didn't want that to happen again. And it was unfair and unjust that people who have less power and less means to, you know, uh, to deal with climate change are going to bear the brunt of it. And so that's why I joined the fight. I joined the fight. Uh, the, I became a climate activist in, when I was 18. And that drives me ever since. Um, and that's what it drives me in my work in organizing. Yeah, I tried to make social change in other ways. I, I tried being a lawyer. I tried working at the UN. I tried policy. But for me, it comes back down to the people and my community that I believe needs to have their, their voice heard and to have the platform to have to speak for themselves and what what well they want to see for, for themselves and their their people. So um, that's that's what organizing is for me and that's what drives me to do what I do. So that's both just incredibly powerful stories that you two have opened up with and thank you so much. And I think community organizing as a thing, most of us have probably never even heard of until Barack Obama ran for president and then suddenly he was talking about his background as a community organizer. Can you just introduce this idea to people who might not really know about it or have heard about it, but it feels like a little bit of an out there idea? What is community organizing for you and how is it different to other forms of activism or campaigning? David, do you want to start with you? Community organising is about building power. It's a way to get access to power for those of us in the communities that uh, don't traditionally get afforded that access. The work that we do in Sydney Alliance is a type of community organising called broad-based community organising. It's about building an alliance and a coalition of different types of institutions that are owned and run by their own communities that come together to build the power to win. There's a big focus in community organising on developing leaders and by developing leaders, developing those organisations to make them strong. It's quite distinct from campaigning and mobilising. One of the key tenets is understanding the difference between subject to object and subject to subject. Now, when you do this with Australian audiences who've never studied grammar or never done a second language, this language of subject object doesn't quite fit. But in the sense that subject being the person and object being a thing, there are still ways of doing petitions and campaigning and mobilising people where you just see people as objects, as fuel for a bigger fire. But organising sees every person as another person. It is subject to subject work. And relational organizing is about building that power, that ability to act through the power of relationship. Now, sometimes when I'm doing these trainings with, let's say, you know, stereotypically, you know, hardline union folks or, you know, core activist people who are like, that sounds like kumbaya, that sounds like hippie stuff, you know, and you just have to remind people that the rich and the powerful organise relationally. They do it at yacht clubs. They do it on the side of rugby games. They do it at private school events. 
They do it in cigar clubs. They do it at corporate conferences. And our communities that are meant to be relational, that are meant to be built and alive and breathing with humanity, actually end up quite siloed and quite separate from each other. And so the process of broad-based organising is getting people back into relationship with each other. And from that relationship, working out what do we agree on, what can we work on, all right, let's go and let's move the decision maker and get them to deliver what we need for our communities. I love that so much. And you're so right. Like, why do we see relationships as soft and optional and fluffy and unstrategic? And we're yet we're so willing in, in many campaigning contexts to treat people like a walking ATM or some other kind of resource to exploit. What can I get this person to do? Um, Twee, can you talk to us a little bit about organizing across diversity in, in kind of the different contexts that you've done it in? Because I'd imagine there'd be some really big cultural, um, if, if, if we're humans relating as other humans um, and not just kind of command and control style telling people what we want them to do, then I imagine there's a lot of listening and trying to kind of meet people where they're at. Can you talk to us about how you approach organizing across really diverse communities of especially you know migrants with a campaign that you mentioned right at the top the voices for power campaign um but maybe other groups as well yeah thanks um Lillian um yes so community organizing we do that or relational organizing it goes through a cycle for us so maybe I can talk through the cycle and how that has applied in our work in voices for power so the organizing cycle starts off with listening and relationship building. So we listen to the communities. We have relational meetings. These are one-on-one -on -one conversations with leaders to understand what their interests are and what makes them tick and what values um, that they hold and what do they want to work on? What is our common interest to work on the common good together? From there, we, we go to a period of, of research action. We've listened to all the pressures and the issues our communities are facing. And so we research what are some solutions to these problems? And we discern together, what is it that we want to work on achieving together? What actual concrete solutions we want to, to um, reach together and win together? And then we take action. This is the campaigning moment, I suppose. We take action, go to the decision maker and say, will you commit to implementing this solution for us? Um, with us actually and then we go to a period of evaluation and this cycle is you know ongoing and iterative right and so I think why this model has worked so well and why it is addressing a fundamental gap I see um, is that it, it starts with listening it starts with where people are at as you said uh, when I was a part of the climate movement when I was 18 um, I was one of the only people that was a person of color. Um, I We started talking about we needed to engage communities in Western Sydney because we couldn't win this fight without them. And we tried doing that. We tried doing that by going out to Western Sydney University in Parramatta, getting people to sign petitions uh, to support a um, solar thermal farm in Port Augusta, um, and we tried to have conversations with them to, to join our campaign. But people said, 
we're not interested in that. And I've started to hear sort of stereotypical sort of rumblings by people being like, these people just don't care or, or like they, they have other priorities that they care about more. Um, with all those things that didn't quite ring true for me, right? Because I, I know my parents, my mom is one of the most frugal people, you know, and one of the most conscious about consumption that we know, right? Reuses every single plastic bag we have in the house. Um, in, almost never goes out the takeaway because you didn't want to use all that plastic. And I know I've talked to so many community leaders who grow their own vegetables and have these most beautiful gardens, right? And how they talk about the land they're from. And they, they, they talk about how they, this, can, this amazing connection to the homeland that they're from. So I didn't think that these grumblings about how these communities don't care about climate change didn't seem true for me. It's just that we weren't speaking to our communities, to the people from where they're at. And so that's why Voices Power came about. It was addressing this fundamental gap that we weren't engaging migrant communities where they're at and really listening to their stories and their voices about what they care about. And so we started off by having relational meetings. I went from church to church speaking to Vietnamese priests in Cabramatta. Um, you know, that I might have been rebuffed then because they said, oh, I don't want to, we don't care about that stuff at the moment. But I didn't think that was true. I think that our communities are, are being confronted with so many pressures right now. And maybe at that point, they weren't ready to talk about this particular pressure. But, you know, I started talking to, um, you know, <laughs> um, Azra, who's, she's a leader in the Pakistani community, and she's been in the Alliance for a really long time, told a story about how, you know, her, her and her women worked on this permaculture project at the Sydney Community Forum and that they, they, they're engaged in this and that they want to protect the, the planet and they want to protect the climate. I talked to a sheikh, uh, Sheikh Adid, at the Muhajirin Association in Blacktown, and he said that his community is being chased by debt collectors from energy companies because they can't afford to pay their bill. And we said, you know what, that is an issue that is unfair right now. We're going to fight we're going to sit here and fight, fight against that with you. We're going to like find a campaign, find solutions so our communities don't have to, to suffer um, the unaffordable energy prices. And, you know, eventually all these, all these issues are all related, right? It's about treating people as, you know, passive consumers and not empowered citizens who can have a voice about the, the energy systems that they want um, in the world. Because if you gave people the choice do you want to an energy system that, you know, cooks our planet? People will say no, right? But we're not engaging people on that level or listening to them or having a longer conversation with them. Um, we, we can't just keep sticking petitions in people's faces. We have to really listen and, and talk with them and co-design solutions together that addresses the issues that they feel really urgently about. This is so good. This is the conversation you want every person to hear. I'm hearing you talk about listening and that very first step, which is so often just flown over. Or if we do listen, we listen for a very specific purpose. Like I'm going to convene a focus group to figure out how to like manipulate you into caring or to figure out what message is most going to sell with you rather than I'm actually going to treat you as a human being and try to find out where you are and why. Um, I'm also hearing, you know, this idea of of something that takes time, you know, that relational organizing by definition is not the quick um, overnight success campaign. It is slow work. 
and it is deep work. And it is, as you say, mirroring what actually happens in the circles of power. So I want to, I want to take this conversation to kind of this bigger picture question of like our democracy writ large. And, you know, David, you, you feature very awesomely in the film, Big Deal, talking about democracy and how we engage and why we need to engage that way. From where you sit, what is right with Australian democracy right now? And what is the biggest thing that you wish you could change or that you're working to change? We're working with some Afghan leaders at the moment. And whether it's the Afghan leaders we're working with in Cumberland or when you work with you know, a sister organisation in Hong Kong, you realise that there's a lot of right things around Australian democracy. Civil rights give us a lot of freedoms to organise that many around the world don't have. And that's why it's so heartbreaking to see really good middle-class, well-educated people who care about lots of things disengage. I'm like, hello, you have got an opportunity to use your power, but instead it's easier to get up you know, upset on Twitter or watch Q&A, get overwhelmed. Q&A, by the way, is this show, for those who don't know, that where, you know, they put people on, pit them against each other, polarise the um, kind of audience uh, against each other, right? So we're in this system where people kind of give up and um, the fundamentals in, in, in Australian democracy are there, but they're not being used. And, and, there's no perfect system, right? The, the system has to always be kept in check by community power. It always has to be under pressure by the people to keep politicians in line. That's the nature of power, um, whether they're from your party or not. And so I think, you know, I think back to the day of that interview with, uh, with Christian at the University of New South Wales, beautiful green lawn, you know, eastern suburbs, very well-off area. I just come from a, you know, community hall. Uh, where we're having a very different discussion around, uh, I think it was affordable housing. And Christian's there and he says, he says something like, um, you know, he's just giving off this sense of, yeah, I've got it, you know, I, I, I've uncovered the big, the big, um, the scheme, the big Ponzi scheme that is politics. And I've had it. And I'm like, yeah, welcome to the club, buddy. Okay, what now? What are you going to do with that? right? Because power wants you to disengage. Power wants you to think that politics is dirty. They want you to think that it's all down there in Canberra or Washington or Wellington or London. It's all those politicians with bribery and blackmail. I don't want to get, I don't want to get my hands dirty. And so what we've seen in, in, in Western uh, democracies is that people of faith and moderation that throughout the 20th century really were a, for better or worse, let's be honest, a moderating influence on democracy have, have stepped away from that. And so what's happened is you have this polarisation that matches what's happening online. And as organisers, we just, we just don't accept that. Uh, we don't accept that and we are about getting people back into the fray um, because we have this, th there is a saying that I keep next to my desk, which is, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And it means that people are going to be making decisions about your life. Do you want to be part of those decisions? Do you want to be part of those discussions? 
And if the answer is yes, then you've got to get organized. So what do you say to somebody then? Um, Twee, what do you say, first of all, to the maybe fellow migrant that you are speaking to who goes, oh, but no, it's not like, it's not my place. Who, who am I to actually have a seat at this table? Because I feel like there is a real, um, particularly to migrants, not exclusively, there is a real message that's like, no, 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 you come to a new country and, and you just shut up and keep your head down and work real hard. And, you know, I, I can imagine that it's really hard to flip that script. What do you say to somebody who just doesn't see themselves as having a place at the table? I think that's such a good question. It's such a good question. And do you know what I say? I say, if you're not at the table, who will make the decisions for you, right? Like exactly the, the, the quote that David said, if you're not at the table, we're on the menu. And if not you, who? And I think it's, it's, it's not, it's not just like, if not you, who it's also, we can do it together. It doesn't just, just have to be you. It doesn't just have to be me. If we do it together in community and our communities have gone through a lot and we have survived, right? We, we are standing on the shoulders of, of people, communities who came here. We've been settled here as refugees and we have built Vietnamese schools. We have, um, you know, our children are, are educated now and they have this, you know, this, we have all this access to, to, to halls of power now. A lot of our communities do. And if you don't stand up now, when can we, right? And, what I, and, I, and I try to sort of connect to our sense of anger, right? I think anger is, is the key here. Um, and when I tell my story about, you know, being 12 and being reminded so vividly that I do not belong here and people will remind me of that and my family of that, it it, I think it, everyone, all migrants can have a story that relates to that. And if you tell that 12-year-old girl to just it's a, shut up and get off the bus and don't make any waves, is that okay, right? I, I think about what I tell myself when if, if I met my 12-year-old self again, right? I'd say I'm going to make a better world that you never feel that you, you're not, you don't belong here. And so... Um, that's what I say. I think, I don't, I don't know what I say, but I, that's why I share that, you know, we have this collective anger, but we also have this collective right to be here. And if we don't step up now to, to organize and, and raise our voices, um, and, and to have a say about the future, um, who else would do that for us and better us than other people is what I say. Yeah. If not you, who, if not now, when? And, um, and Twee's absolutely right. You know, my main <laughs> agitation there is for p folks like me, you know, middle-class white folks, you know, we can do so much more than what we, what we, what we do. But part of, part of the issue as well, Lillian, for, for a lot of people is that they're no longer part of institutions. They're no longer part of organisations. And so they're not getting that experience, particularly cross-generationally, that you would used to get in a church or in a scout troop or uh, a rotary club or, you know, a Buddhist temple or a mosque perhaps. Part of the issue is that 
people aren't part of organisations. You know, you, you, we had a lot of this in the early 2000s, the decline of civil society. Robert Putnam had his book Bowling Alone that came out. But it's, it's broadly true. People aren't part of those cross-generational organisations that allow you to discuss life together in community, not just your family, not just your friends you choose, but in community. And where those organisations still exist is such a fruitful place for democracy to happen because in those spaces you have to recognise the other person, right? So if I'm at church and there's an older person and maybe they're a very conservative person, right, I have to take that person as a human because we are in relationship together and I have to listen and think about my views in relationship to that person. And so when you separate people and isolate them and make them automatized individuals, people are not getting that experience. And so part of the work that we do is about creating that experience of people mixing up, people mixing up in public life. Yeah, I think that's so important. And it it goes to that quote that, um, I mean, I've I've heard from Brene Brown, but probably also many others, that it's, it's hard to hate up close. And we talk about atomization and polarization and the hollowing out of our kind of more community and public lives as this almost inevitable consequence of the pressures of modern life, the pressures of two-income households, if you're lucky enough to have that, or um, all the other demands on our time. But I think the real truth is, is there's also an element of choice. It is a choice to be involved. And the good thing in what I'm hearing you say as well is that it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go out and become some superhero um, activist, organizer, politician, candidate for office, that you have to become ultra-political if you're not someone who's ultra-political, like that actually being involved in whatever form of community you are drawn to is a legit form of, of, of kind of engagement and community shaping and muscle building and learning how to be with other people. You guys want to add anything to that? Tweet? Oh, sorry, David. Well, go. well, well, well. I've got to because because I've got a bunch of folks that do community development in social work, and I have great respect for community developers. But there's a view that 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 stops there, almost stops at the picket fence, right? Which is we build community and we we we're in t- together, but that is not enough. Community organizing is based on a fundamental truth that power must be contested. And that analysis of power has to be taught. And many of our institutions, even though they have very long histories of contesting power, uh, whether it's religious traditions or trade unions or community organisations, which were started in the you know sixties and seventies in the in the movements, you know, feminist movement, LGBTI, you know, anti racism, so on. Many of those organisations have forgotten about that role of contesting power and and that's a a critical component that must be added to the building of community it's those two things together and the thing about it is when you bring people in and you explain how things work and you work with people on the issues they care about and people start to see how power works and they get a little win it's electric it's bloody electric and i want to tell a story to to show It's 2013. We've got close to 2,000 people in the Sydney Town Hall. They've gathered to launch the campaign for affordable housing. From every conversation in every suburb in the city, from rich, poor, black, white, brown, you name it, affordable housing is an affordable in Sydney. 
So we launched a campaign to get it started. Well, the state government wasn't very interested in doing anything on affordable housing. It's a conservative government and very non-interventionalist into the market. And we had to, we had a long fight, right? And through this campaign, we did actions, we did media, we did research, we brought it all together. We did a power analysis on the housing minister. And it took us till 2017 to put together an action. I want you to put yourself in this Picture, picture this. There's 350 people crammed into Eastwood Uniting Church. It's a small suburban church, fits 250 people. You could never get away with it with COVID. People are shoulder to shoulder. They come from every background of Sydney. They've all got their organisational shirts. They've got their, we've got reverends in collars. We've got shakes in their gear. We've got people in their bright magenta shirts from the community organisations. And everyone's waiting for the planning minister to turn up. And he's late. We've had an 18-month process to get the, the planning minister to this gathering. He turns up. He wants to sit at the back. We say, no, minister, we've got a seat for you right at the front. Come on down. And he comes down. There's almost silence in the room as he comes down the front, and he looks very uncomfortable. We don't set out to make politicians uncomfortable. It's just they're not used to being held accountable like this. So he comes and he sits down and then we have 80 representatives of different organisations from across Sydney come and say, Minister, you've got to do something on housing. Anyway, we have, you know, the best expert in the Southern Hemisphere on affordable housing. You know, he sounds like Ringo Starr, full establishment credentials. We've got stories from, um, you know, Mabel, who's Sierra Leonean. We've got um, Deb Burt, who's, you know, you know, she lives in Epping, which is a very up, upper class area talking about. We've got a young nurse. We've got everyone there telling their stories. And then it's his turn to get up. And he gets up there. He's at one lectern. The other lectern is Donna Eastthorpe and Leah Emanuel. Donna Eastlorp, librarian from very suburban person, former PE teacher, and Leah Emanuel, who, you know, young person from the Syrian-Armenian community. And their job is to hold the mic and get clarity from this planning minister. We had seven asks, and guess what? He said no to six of them. He said, no, I won't do that. No, I won't do that. I won't be held to that. Da, 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 da. Well, you can imagine, the room was frosty as. The last one, he gave us a yes. It was a very simple ask. It was, Minister, will you come back in three months' time? We'll get our people together, but will you bring the CEO of the Greater Sydney Commission? By the way, the Greater Sydney Commission is this planning body that's set up by the state government because what was happening, it's boring as, but basically the ministerial wing was saying it was the bureaucrats, bureaucrats were saying it was the minister, minister and on goes forever and ever and no affordable housing ever gets built and we've got a home, you know, people living you know, chronically homeless in, in Sydney. He says yes. The crowd gives him a clap. They say, well done, right? And Donna shakes his hand. And she looks straight down the camera and they take a photo. In the photo, you can see Donna shaking his hand and he's got a big, you know, slimy smile on his face. I'm a politician. And she's, she looks like a PE teacher for a student who's just, you know, you know, not done his homework. Three months later, we're now organised at the St Mary's Cathedral Hall. 600 people. We've got, now this guy's a Catholic, the planning minister's a Catholic, a good Catholic. So we've got three rows of Catholic nuns in the first, you know, in, in, the, in the audience staring him down, right? We've got the Archbishop of Sydney, who's a very conservative 
you know, a guy very committed to um, issues around homelessness and very committed to issues around modern slavery, very conservative though and, and well-known, leading light on this conservative side, he gets up and opens it. So we've got the we've got the Grand Mufti, we've got the moderator of the Uniting Church, we've got the head of the Baptists, right? And the place is packed. This time he brings the CEO and in that forum they commit to affordable housing and she commits to affordable housing in the plans. Can you imagine the win? Every single person in that room feels a win. Yes, we did it. We did something on an intractable issue where the housing sector had been working for years and years and years to get something done. Now, a win on the night is not a win in the bank, but it has led to now hundreds of planning documents across Sydney, literally hundreds being changed to include affordable housing. Percentages included in every local council area almost in Sydney. There's 33 local councils. It's a bloody bureaucratic nightmare. But we're there and we're there because people organised. The best moment in those campaigns, though, and Twee knows this too, is when you get a call from the decision maker. And we got a call from someone inside the bureaucracy who said, I need you to know that because of that event, when the Cabinet wanted to remove affordable housing from the Greater Sydney Commission plans, they couldn't. Well done. Um, what a story. Thank you for sharing it with us. And it is really inspiring because I think um, we can often look at the headlines and look for the headline wins, look for the headline good that seems to come anywhere near the scale of the problems that we are facing and feel defeatist. And feel like giving up. And we never get headlines. Lillian, we never get headlines. We are so unsexy. We aren't about conflict. We aren't about, you know, we aren't about the magic. We aren't, you know, we aren't the Barack Obama story. You know, we aren't the, we aren't the speedy story of, you know, the campaign win. We're talking about concrete issues that, to be honest, and I love them, some of them are my friends, well-heeled journalists just don't really experience. So we generally don't get headlines, and that's why we love partnering with people who are good at getting media. I don't know if you think that's fair, Twee, but I think that's the reality of some of our work. you're enjoying this conversation if you haven't seen the movie big deal yet and you want to check it out go to the website makeitabigdeal.org we have no official connection to this film we're just really excited about it and helping to spread the word so you can watch a preview if you are not in lockdown in australia it's out in cinemas now if you are in lockdown you can either find or host a community screening online and um, hopefully it'll be distributed internationally pretty soon as well also just a plug to follow the podcast and spread the word if you're enjoying it it really does help to get this conversation out there thanks everybody back to the show Anger is critical for community organising. We don't mean frustration or stress when you're in the traffic. It's about identifying that cold anger that burns within you, that righteous anger. And we help people put that anger to work. We know that anger comes from grief, from angst. You know, that's where anger comes from angst. The German angst means, you know, grief. It comes from love withdrawn or love denied. And 
when you scratch the surface, a lot of people have that anger, but they don't know how to put it to good work and how to do it in a way that is cooperative and constructive rather than destructive. And that's probably the thing that keeps me in community organizing. I get a lot of generous anger about what's going on in the world and getting up every day to do this job and working with other leaders that have got the same helps me to process that. And what a healthy use for it as compared to say finding an online forum where you can vent that anger and have it built up in a way that just builds more hatred for the people that you think are responsible. And, and anger has to be, it's not just anger, it's also giving people hope and moving people to action, right? It has to have an outlet somewhere. And, and, and if you're moving to action in community for our common values, for our common like earth that we're living on, um, that's good, right? That's, 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 that's a good outlet. Not, not, there's no value to that, but like that is an outlet where we can actually make some change for the better, um, seizing on the anger, but yeah, you need the anger, but you also need that hope and you also need to move them to action. Is there a gendered issue with anger? Like I feel like women are taught to feel sad or to be more comfortable with sad and grief than we are with mad and angry. Yes. Do you have to, like, how do you approach that? It's gendered and there are race dynamics in terms of anger and we are, we have to unpack it, right? And for me, um, as a Vietnamese woman, um, I thank goodness my mom helped me to to see that there is healthy you can healthily express your anger because that is it's about the righteous indignation about the injustice you see. My my mom, whenever she saw that you know we would be discriminated against, so there were teachers who were treating me and my brother poorly for whatever reason. She would stand up for us, right? And I could see the anger in her, but she took action, and I felt protected in that moment, right? And, and so, like, but then that's, that's not the common thing for Vietnamese women. We are supposed to be safe face. We are supposed to um, not speak out of turn, like really internalise it. But my mom, for her amazing talents, taught me to not hold on to that uh, internally and, and but take action for it. And so we that's one of the really key things that we're working in terms of transforming our communities um, like relationship with anger um, to to sort of find ways to work through that those like I think misgivings and and hang-ups about it because it's really holding us back and and it's also we have to also then re- change our relationship to power as well there's like power and anger very contested things and we're we're constantly working through that um, in a way that's like really like mindful and appropriate and culturally sort of um, relevant. Um, yeah. And I've learned so much from Twee and the other, um, uh, people of color leaders in, in, in the work about this, you know, and I, and I just want to say, what do we do about it? We train it. We train, we have to de, well, we have to decolonize our language, but we also have to de, we have to take away the baggage around these words of power and anger, because we need to be able to name them and hold them and, and draw on the traditions of our, our faiths or our communities or our, or our heritage to find the stories in our experience that give us that power to, um, to have the strength to look a premier or a corporate leader in the eye and ask them to act, ask them to be accountable. Mm. I've heard Brene Brown talk about power over versus power with or power to, and that a lot of us that have a knee jerk reaction or, you know, 
flinch around the word power and that being something that we should be interested in, it's usually because we're thinking of it as power over others rather than power with or power to. How do you teach people to unpack these things? Well, it's actually about going back to the root of the word, power being the ability to act. And then you can choose to act in a way, you can choose to exercise that ability to act in a way that is dominating, or you can choose to operate in a way where that ability to act is cooperative and relational. The thing is, the cooperative and relational way is not what we think about mostly when we think about power. So we have to help people see that and imagine it and practice it in order to do it, in order to execute it. You know, you said something back at kind of the start of the conversation about how it's not just enough to do community at the white picket fence. We have to also engage with power. Can you help us think through a little bit how we maybe connect these two camps a little bit better? Because for all the people who do see themselves as maybe belonging to the Country Women's Association or the Scouts Group or the church or the sporting club, but would never see themselves as belonging in a political party membership or an activist group or... um, And you sort of alluded to the idea that a lot of these organizations were set up originally with a bigger critique of power um, at their core and that some of them have kind of lost those skills. Is that right? Do I have that right? You've got it right. You've got it right. Learn the stories. Learn the stories. I mean, CWA, Country Women's Association, I mean, look at what they've done on gas. Look at what they've done on on suicide in the country. They are absolutely very political organization, but it's not what you think of when you think of politics. Sporting groups, when council wants to get rid of the sporting pitch, I mean, there's a group of skateboarders in the inner west of Sydney who have had a 20-year campaign to get the skate park built. That's political, right? Um, there's a group in Wallandilly that's a, a kind of a permaculture group, a resilience network. The bushfires are political for them and the response to the bushfires is political, right? I mean, I mean that's, that's politics. Politics means the welfare of the city. Do you participate in the welfare of the city? So it's all it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. It's not it's not like there's politics out there. Mm. Yeah, doing community in a way that connects to power um, is is something that we think a lot about at Australia Remade. And like one of our favorite stories is this ten year campaign that was led in Victoria um, to actually achieve a constitutional ban on fracking through the whole state of Victoria. And so they had all of these local communities doing it their way, doing what they wanted to do, what they thought would be effective, but with this real sense of what they called always look up. Like this can't just be a not in my backyard campaign that achieves one little local ban, but then the gas well just moves somewhere else. And always look up was also about like, how do we connect up what we are doing to the bigger picture of power, which is a hard thing to fit on a campaign placard. It's a hard thing to sloganize. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard right now in Zoom. We're literally all in our boxes, but uh, I guess when you've got the relationship, you, when you've got the relationship between the communities, you can do amazing things. All right. So I think in addition to just kind of maybe feeling overwhelmed by, um, a sense of lack of time or agency or opportunity to sort of become the kind of people that could um, go off and organize for change. 
I think among some of us, there's also this fear that we see the polarization in society, we see the division, we see the anti-lockdown protests or the anti-vaccination protests a lot at the moment on television, and we think, I don't want to add more of that into the world. I would rather be a, quote, quiet Australian than a jerk. How do you help people overcome that fear that, and how do you help them to see themselves as playing part of a positive role? not just for whatever they happen to care about, but for like the greater good for society? Well, the first step is that we don't want to turn people into jerks. That's, that's not what we want to do. <laughs> so starting with relationships is really important. That's number one. If you can go on a long drive and talk about what, drive, you know, what motivates you with someone in your family, then you can be an organiser. If you can put on a dinner party or a bingo night at your church, or a potluck at your school, you can be an organiser. It is simply about learning about how the the big decisions that happen in our politics uh, affect our day-to-day lives and connecting that with our capacity to organise people together. See, it's the organising where you have to see other people as humans that makes it quite different to mobilising. It's not just about getting a mob. It's not just about getting a renter crowd. It's about getting that diversity of people together and listening deeply and recognising that you don't have all the truth, neither do they, and that you're going to find something together that that you can work on that's constructive. I should say this doesn't work for every issue and we don't expect it to. Organising is not made for every issue. But it is often made for those issues that get left behind in the polarised politics of of today. I think about Janice Stokes, who gave up her corporate career to go and work for St. Vincent de Paul's. I think about Donna, who I shared before, a librarian. I think about Reverend Alamoni, who is a Tongan minister and a a good friend of mine who I've learned so much from him, Uh, a Uniting Church minister who cares deeply about his his Tongan community, but also checks in on us organisers to make sure we're going okay. I think about so many everyday people who found their voice through this approach. So, Tui, how do we come together across differences? Do we, I mean, yes, you're saying you need to start with a person and with a relationship, but if you find yourself sitting opposite somebody who you know you fundamentally probably disagree with them on any number of things, how, what do you, what do you do? Where do you start? I think that's a really good question, and um, you know, as a person, as a as a you know, a person, a climate activist who uh, came up, got their political education in the climate movement, and as a millennial, um, you know, I hold a lot of um, like, I guess, my views are, are a lot more progressive, right? Very, very, very progressive, and I've had to. It's been a challenge for me um, working in so broad-based organising because there's such a diversity of views, of life experiences, people so different from me. And it has been a, a culture shock but also a, a joy because even though, like, you know, I, I learned this really early in my internship actually um, in an internship group, um, I – said something that was in fundamental, like it, it, 
it was against another person's sort of views fundamentally. It was something that we would never agree with. But we were able to reconcile because, you know, both of us are young women of colour who care about our communities, who care about our families, and we were going to protect them no matter what. We're going to organise to protect them no matter what. And I have deep respect for this person, even though we may not agree, we may not be on the same side to certain issues, but we are on the same side to other very important issues to us. And we found common ground to, to continue working together. And and I've, I have a deep respect for this person because she's such a strong young woman uh, doing amazing work in the church. And, you know, like that that's okay because I, I sat down and listened to this person as a person, not as the views that they hold. And I kind of wish that people had more conversations, right, just had a coffee, um, someone who's different from them, like, and that's why I don't, I'm not on Twitter much and I'm not on Facebook much. I've had to turn off because I I don't believe that you can have the nuance or capture the nuance of, of this person through, a, you know, 100 characters on, on social media. And so that's what I've been uh, trying to do a lot more is to sit down with people who I think are, are very different from me, have very different life experiences from me because I think I can learn a lot from them and they can learn a lot from me as well. Um, we are not just at the issues that we care about, but we are also people in our values and our families and our communities. And, and that is beautiful. And, and I want to be people to be more curious about that than um, just what I say on my Twitter uh, handle, <laughs> I guess. Uh, that's it. And look, it starts with stories. It's about sharing stories about ourselves, you know, and, um, and I'm thinking about a story of my, my granddad. I opened this by saying Kiora, my granddad was Maori, even though I'm white as a sheet. <laughs> um, he said, one of the things he said, I recorded his stories. He was a builder from a working class uh, rural area in um, New Zealand. And I recorded his stories before he passed away. And one of the things he said, I said, if you could summarise your philosophy, granddad, what would it be? He said, treat people bloody right. Treat them as people. And that's kind of what I say to people, you know, I'm, I'm a gay man and every day I work with Muslims and conservative Baptists and Orthodox Jews and, um, you know, extremely conservative Catholic folks. How do I do that? Because we're not defined by our differences when we work together in, in the organising approach. Likewise, I say to the Christians, and there might be, you know, Christians, how do you as a Christian work, again, with the Muslims and the Jews and the Buddhists, but with those secular unionists, right? And how do you get up there and say that you're a follower of Jesus of Nazareth in front of all of those people? You know, it's because we've built the trust that people know where I'm coming from. They know where Twee's coming from. They know where each other are coming from because we take the time to share the stories. And that's why it's slow, because we take the time to invest in each other some groups are set up to go fast. We're set up to go far. So so just to bring it home, in the journeys that you've been on, in all that you've seen, in being involved in so many campaigns, as well as the odd, you know, the film like Big Deal that's looking at our democracy, are you more hopeful now than when you started? And what what do you want people to take with them in their belief about democracy and what is possible? 
I can rephrase that because that's actually very clumsy. Basically asking, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Like, are, thing, are we all doomed or are things getting better? Because I think that there are a lot of people who just feel like the world is completely falling apart right now. Okay. Well, I've got two different answers to that. So I don't know. I, 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 I'm going to be as short as I can. If you're like me and you're a pessimist and the world is doomed, ask yourself, so what? What then? Are you really just going to let it burn? Okay, sure. It might be going to hell in a handbasket, but what's your role in that? I have no time for false hope. I wouldn't say that I have more or less hope, you know, as a kind of abstract idea. I mean, I'm a Christian. I hope coming out my ears, but, you know, I, that, that, I have no less hope about our democracy than when I started. But what I have now from community organising is more imagination, more creative energy and relationships and fire and solidarity with others to be able to make at least what I can influence better. And that's all anyone can do. But get involved with others and get a power analysis and you'll find that you can do a lot more than you think. I think for me I'm fundamentally hopeful, right, um, my my family has gone through like my has gone through upheaval, right? We my my mum and dad jumped on a boat to escape a war, and let and and found their way here. And I was born in Hong Kong in a refugee camp, and I found my way here. And so I'm hopeful, right? Because because I am very lucky. I'm very grateful for for being able to be here. I have a lot of privileges, but also know that there's a lot of injustice out there. So our work is not done, and. When, you know, there are days where I'm just so disheartened when, you know, uh, all the LGAs of concern in Sydney uh, that are locked down and they only have one hour of fresh air that they can go outside um, to 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 exercise and that's where all of our communities are, where, it, where it's, you know, some of the poorest places where diverse communities live and they're punishing them um for having precarious work and having to go to work and not being able to stay at home and, you know, setting the police rather than, you know, health workers out there. I then, or I connect to my community leaders that I've come to know through my work, right? And they're out there, you know, talking to communities about the health orders and talking to them about what the vaccine really is about. And they're talking to them in language, in community. They're opening up their mosques. They're opening up the churches and the the Sikh temples for vaccinations. And I am so in awe of the capacity for our communities to be resilient in this situation. So if I can see that, the capacity for people to do this and, and respond in such a crisis... I can also imagine what else we can do if we all work, work together, right? That the future crises, are no, they're not going to treat our communities like this anymore. We are going to be at, in the driver, driver's seat determining how we're going to manage future crises. And I am resolute about that. I want to do mine again after that. I can't do my <laughs> depressing one after hearing that. <laughs> This is and this is no this is no critique of you, David, personally at all. But it did that that dichotomy to give me cynicism is a privilege. Like I had never thought of it so starkly before, that the cynics that I know get to be cynical because of all of the the privilege that they have in their lives. Not not only is 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 
the choice to engage a privilege with the choice to be cynical and disengage is a privilege. And I've never thought of it in those terms before. So if people are listening to this and, and going, oh my goodness, where do I start? Where do I learn more? Where do I learn how to do this? Where do you, what would you suggest for someone who wants to learn more about this as an approach? Well, you got to get into it. Like you can't really read about it. You got to go talk to someone and get a coffee or a Zoom coffee as we're all doing. So if you're an Australian, make contact with Queensland Community Alliance, Hunter Community Alliance or Sydney Alliance. If you're in anywhere else in Australia, just Drop us a bell through our website, sydneyalliance.org.au. If you're in the UK, check out Citizens UK. If you're in the US or Canada, check out the Industrial Areas Foundation. If you're in New Zealand, check out um, the Living Wage New Zealand or uh, Te Ohu and get connected. And I guarantee whether you're with us for, you know, a week, a month, a day, 10 years, it will be something that will just bring such vitality and power to your life. Now that sounds very sleazy power, you know, but the ability to build cooperative power and, and to get into the politics in a way that matches you. Yeah. I love it. Sweet. Anything to add? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing replaces being in a room full of people who care about the state of the world as deeply as you do, but are also are in it, you know, with you, right. Your co-conspirators, your teammates, Right, finding that group of people is what I was trying to find when I joined the you know, Australian Youth Climate Coalition, the climate movement, and I found my people here. And you can find your people too. Um, it's there's no antidote to you know the anger that you feel, but just getting involved and getting standing up and getting organised. Well, thank you both so much for just an incredibly inspiring conversation. Um, I think that we've all taken a lot from it. And I really want to thank you both for your time and for your example and for really just making this something that happens to real people in everyday life rather than talking about democracy or <laughs> politics as something that happens on TV, you know, or that we try to tune out when it comes on TV. Um, you've really made it real for us. So here are some of my notes from that conversation. Number one, there are still lots of ways of working that treat people as objects, as fuel for a bigger fire. Imagine if we treated every person as another person. Number two, power and wealth organize relationally. So why are the rest of us still being so transactional and siloed? Number three, step one is listening. We can't just keep sticking petitions in people's faces without really listening, talking to them, and co-designing solutions together. Number four, it is a privilege to engage and to use our power, but it is also a privilege not to engage and to be cynical. Number five, there is no perfect system. The system always has to be kept in check by community power. Number six, what would you say if you met your 12-year-old self? Would you tell them we're going to build a better world? 
Number seven, we could do a lot worse than to just re-engage in those cross-generational groups where we learn to come together and work towards something together, people who are different, especially if we learn how to not only build community, but understand and contest power. Number eight, the good work of, say, laying the foundation for more affordable housing often really isn't the sexy stuff that makes headlines. Number nine, getting comfortable with our righteous, generous anger and learning how to channel that in productive and cooperative ways is one of the best things that we can do as we live in the tension between the world as it is and the world as it should be. And finally, number 10, as a wise man summed up his philosophy on life, treat people bloody right, treat them as people. That's our show for today, everyone. All the things that we talked about are there in the show notes. I hope you really enjoyed it. Please share if you did, and we'll see you next time on The Remakers. This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I record this podcast from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. I want to pay my deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging on this land. I also want to thank my collaborator-in-chief and sometimes special guest co-host, Millie Rooney. Also a huge thank you to our producer, Anna Wilson, and our chair, Louise Tarrant. If you like our theme song, it is by the Duke of Norfolk. You can learn more about Australia Remade and get links and show notes over on our website. That's australiaremade.org and click on the podcast tab. Follow us so you never miss an episode. Be sure to spread the word. If you're feeling extra amazing, you can rate and review Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.